Hi, Nisarg, and welcome to the Founder Forward. The Founder Forward is really a series of conversations we have with founders who have gone beyond seed and successfully scaled their companies. The idea really for this webinar stemmed from our fast forward seed investment program where founders often said while raising your first check is definitely hard. Typically, what is the first 100 days like post your seed check and how do you scale beyond from idea to execution and of course, getting your next round as well. You have gone through all of this yourself. You've moved from India to Singapore and now the US, you've been through an accelerator. Yeah, the best in the world. So I thought you'd be an ideal founder to share your story with. So thank you so much for giving us your time today and look forward to spending the next 30 minutes picking your brains and getting words of wisdom from you. Thank you so much for having me, Anjali. I'm excited to learn more about a program from Waterbridge and share insights, learnings that have helped us. We, there are many learnings that we've taken from other founders, so it's kind of like also a way to kind of give it forward. But at the same time, a lot of it has been purely from experience where we just like don't expect certain things to be in a certain way when, before you go on to the entrepreneurial path. So I'm happy to go through any questions that you might have or the founders or to be founders might have that I can help clarify. Awesome. With that, you know, I distinctly remember your EF pitch. I remember you walking on stage with a Daniel Wellington watch and talking about their success story as a digital first, social first marketing platform and how successfully they've designed, like, you know, assembled in China, designed in Japan, but sold entirely, you know, digital native. And I always tell founders that it is really important to catch the very short attention spans of investors. So take me through that EF journey and I'm sure EF was a turning point for you. Uh, take me through why you chose to apply, how you met Swayam, your co-founder, and would love to just give us like a summary of EF running up to that demo day. Yeah. Sure thing. So I kind of like taking a step back, was working at Goldman Sachs for three years in Bangalore, moved out and I had this itch. I was building products on the side there and none of those side projects that I was moonlighting as a founder were taking off. And my hunch was that it's probably because I was not full-time into it. I had a safety net cushy job. So now was the time. So I think somewhere around mid 2017, I decided to quit and start my own. And this is something completely different that I was working on in the space of augmented reality. At this time, EF came knocking and said, Hey, seems like you're a solo founder building this yourself. We we are experts in bringing solo founders together to help build companies. And I thought it was a scam. I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, you know, you can bring me like to Singapore and then you'll, you know, put me into a room. It's like, you know, speed dating other founders. And it's not common. It was not common, at least back in 2017. Yeah. You were EF's first cohort, right? You were, you were in fact, EF cohort. Singapore's second, second cohort. Yeah. So, so. Yeah, second cohort, but as good as new, because the first cohort was not yeah. like done yet. Um, and announced yet. Out. Yeah. Yeah, they were not they were not announced. The demo day probably happened or was just about to happen. But they were done, they were doing these programs in London. So just that I hadn't heard about them. And then I was like, okay, good, let's give it a shot. So long story short, yeah. I moved to Singapore, spent some time still continuing to work on my own idea, but starting to discuss different ideas with different very, very smart and intelligent folks in the cohort. Um Swayam was one of them. We'd become very good friends over the duration of EF. And we started talking a lot about the future of commerce. 
Swam's mom runs a fashion label in Lucknow. So she had worked with a lot of influencers and creators. I had seen my friends making a lot of money as creators. And we were always curious about what if the future of commerce is going to be driven by social over search, which is a hypothesis, then brands would need a very scalable way to spread their organic content, which people would click and buy on. And yeah. the only way that has worked, if you look at historically, is word of mouth. If people tell other people to you know, buy or consider something, a package or a service or a product, then there's a natural tendency to buy it. That's where we started exploring influencer marketing, micro-influencers, the power of them, the challenges that the brands are facing, spoke to a lot of brands. And then that led us to the demo day pitch where I walk up on the stage yeah. with the Daniel Wellington watch because back yeah. in 2017, every single huge. influencer was talking about Daniel Wellington. Now that strategy is adopted by every D2C brand. But they wrote the playbook. Exactly. Yeah. They wrote the playbook. They drove it before anyone else did. And now everyone's adopting it. Many of them successfully so via Affable and other influencer you know, solutions or influencer marketing strategies. But it works. And back in 2017, in the last few years, there was not a system of record for managing your creators and influencers. And we laid out on the journey to build that out. Started in yeah. Singapore and now we are scaling that in the US. Yeah. And specifically on accelerators, I think that's a question founders tend to ask a lot. And I would say there are contrarian views even there. Many folks say you don't need to go through a program if you're confident in your product or you already have a co-founder, just try and raise directly. I know you, you explained how you didn't have a co-founder and you didn't actually have the specific idea around Affable going into EF. So for you, this actually worked out brilliantly you met a co-founder who came from that space but beyond that do you think ef also helped address the infamous you know industry outsider question that i'm sure you also got a lot given that both of you come from engineering backgrounds you had to like i know swam so studied in singapore but for you it was even moving to a new country and and starting up but do you feel that gave you in many ways legitimacy or a stamp of validation or just put you through that founder boot camp and therefore you got lesser of hey how can a bunch of engineers who don't know anything about the influencer industry start up in this space yeah so usually accelerators would be able to help with industry related guidance mentorship if there is a good overlap let's say if the the mentors or the venture partners of the accelerator come from that industry. In our case specifically, with a very unique case because uh, EF usually, which is a deep tech accelerator, we're bringing in something where we wanted to use those deep technologies to solve a general tech problem. And I use that in quotes because the technology is machine learning, artificial intelligence, image processing, but we're bringing it to a, a problem statement, which is not like autonomous cars or which is not like, you know, detecting faults in manufacturing industries, et cetera. So that's where, while EF as a stamp of approval helped because, you know, we are backed by a global accelerator, we had to navigate a lot of that space ourselves in the early days. And we would address the elephant in the room, usually heads on, where we say, look, hey, we are outsiders of the space and that's our strength. Look what insiders yeah. have built. Every insider in yeah. the space has built a marketing agency because they think that is the solution to the problem, but it's not. Uh, the solution to the problem is a data-driven influencer strategy. And we know it because we've built such data-driven solutions for other industries. And we think this industry is ripe for that disruption. 
Yeah, interesting you said that. I also wanted to check with you to surround yourself with industry experts, with early supporters who came from either the D2C ecosystem or the e-commerce ecosystem that helped you navigate some of this. And you're absolutely right. I think with teams that are uh, outsiders, not only is it a fresh pair of eyes, there's, there's no what I call uh, you know, information bias or knowledge bias because you come from that space. So it's actually first principles-based thinking and therefore building. Exactly. I mean, uh, not to say that we didn't have advisors in the industry. I think it's very important initially to have someone who's from the industry because they can help you ask the right questions, if not give solutions, right? Like they will still tell you how, you know, how brands make these decisions about buying MarTech softwares or why are, what might be the hesitations or what might be the reasons why brands may not want to buy it? How do you do pricing in an industry like influence marketing? Should you go with a pure SaaS? Should you go with a percentage commission? What are the pros and cons of these? I think being outsiders from the industry, this is a point of knowledge which we lack, which is day in and day out. What are these marketeers, which is our ICP? What are they thinking? How are they making decisions? So that's why it's very important to bring in those advisors. But as founders, it's generally more—it's possible to be still at outsiders than to restrict yourself to only solving yeah. problems for industries you're aware of. Yeah, I think at what which we say horses for courses. And given that you were actually building in an industry itself that was new, I'm sure and rightfully so, it, it can't really be held against you. But post EF, take me through the first hundred days. I'm sure you had a bunch of peers the day you got your term sheet, but very quickly it's it's back to work. And if you recollect, if not the first hundred, maybe the first six months, but would love to know what went through yours and Swayam's mind. What did you prioritize during that time? In hindsight, any words of wisdom for how to navigate the first six months post your seat check? First off, celebrate a little. I think I, I and Swayam were both big believers of celebrating small wins. We celebrate like every customer win with donuts in the office. So like getting funding in the bank and something which is uh, for a first time founder, very meaningful because you've never seen like that kind of an amount in a, in a company bank account. And then they're like, okay, so this is real now. And it hits you suddenly one day and now this is real. And I think from that point onwards, I would describe it as being a combination of a sprint and a marathon where on a day-to-day -day basis, you can't go slow thinking about the long term, but you can't go so fast or you can't only work for the short term. Um, yeah. So, and this is the first time it hits you like, okay, now we have money in the bank. Let's say you raise a million dollar or seed round. That's a lot of money. And for first time founders who, who are going to deal with that money for the first time, like how do we juggle product development, team building, investor relations, because now that's a new thing that's now added because you never had to do that before. And all of this, it's a very exciting phase. You close the deal as a first-time founder, but then you start building on your team. And then you realize, okay, recruiting is such a consuming activity. You, know, yeah. you spend a lot of time finding the right people. Obviously, you do a lot of work before you actually close the round. Uh, and that's something I would advise founders. Identify the people you want to hire much before and put them in your plan. So the moment you have some sort of indication that this is going to close, you start making those conversations, making those offers even. We had to learn a lot about investor communication. We spoke to other founders who've done that before. How do you do those updates? You know, how do you ask for help? Because yeah. 
making sure you ask targeted help like hey i want someone to connect me with this this and this brand unless you ask for it a lot of the investors may not even necessarily know what you're struggling with so yeah. that was another thing we talk a lot about customer development not customer acquisition but in the early days you want to talk to customers understand that language start speaking that language understand the pain point understand what they're willing to pay for and then propose your solution to them and see and validate it so like a lot of the customer validation is what you'd spend time on there's a lot of product iterations so while all of this is going on you know you still have to build building out the product exactly and you're bringing in that feedback live from your last customer development call and you you know you're like oh by the way i just spoke to this customer and they're saying this so now we need to do this this and this in the early days you're very lean so i think it's like you're pretty much able to do and build everything but then there's a point where you have to draw a balance between prioritizing versus you know not letting a customer hijack your product portfolio yeah. so i think that, yeah. that's something we learned over a period of time and you briefly touched upon talent acquisition and i was going to ask you who your first hire beyond the two of you as founders was and what did you really prioritize for in terms of skill sets that you were looking to add on to the team in the early days because obviously a million is fantastic as a seed check but but we all know that you can't have everything with with talent but just keen to understand what skill sets you prioritized over the other and just quickly take us through maybe your like your first five or first 10 employees beyond the founding team what kind of profiles personas talent did you seek to add so we initially were looking for founder mentality people and because we went through ef and going back to the ef we knew a lot of people who were in the cohort whom we spent 3 months with and we'd seen their founder mentality not everyone ended up building a company for multiple reasons and we had a pool of really talented smart individuals who have joined the accelerator to be a founder are not going to do it right now maybe they'll do it in the future so we targeted that group we reached out to our ef cohort community and we identified so we needed really strong engineers to start with so we hired our first engineer from ef uh, who was a member of our cohort she joined us the like day one even before actually we closed our funding round because we knew we really needed someone strong to lead our technical like development while the founders are still navigating everything else so our first few hires were all engineers to build out the product and i think one of the things if i were to go back i would do differently though is i would get someone early on maybe not the first five still but maybe in the 5 to 10 to like get a customer success function going because while the founders are doing customer development and acquiring customers etc it is very important to maintain the relationship and support with these customers and obviously in the early days the founders are still doing it but i felt like a lot of the engineering time went into customer success which is not ideal and you need like that person yeah. but yeah initially most of hires were engineers at some point after we crossed certain arr which was all founder led again we brought in someone to help us set up a sales process move on from like an excel sheet to some sort of crm where we can you know look at our funnel our metrics and figure out what to improve yeah and as you were looking 
through metrics and you spoke of investor relations and I'm, I'm sure the first few weeks and months was also getting familiar with the investor reviews monthly reviews and again given it's a new space i'm sure you were also not sure on what you're really supposed to track but if you could give us an insight into what that mis dashboard or your north star metrics looked like back in the day and more importantly how it evolved because again you there are multiple moving blocks in an early stage business and you can't optimize for every single metric. But as a founder, top of mind, what did you like to see, you know, in those Monday morning meetings or whenever you did those reviews with both investors and your team? So our initial go-to-market was a lot of inbound. So we were tracking, you know, visits to our website, like how a difference in SEO was changing it. And because it was inbound, we had put like a self-service sign-up so people would go in, put their credit card, like you know, Stripe integration, and they can start using the platform. So we were, a lot of our metrics were tracking this flow. People coming into mm -hmm. the website, how many of them are going in? And then we'd launch a new content piece or like, let's say an industry report and how did it change that? What were the conversion prior to sign up, et cetera. So we were focusing a lot on those. And then the final number was revenue, like our MRR is something we were tracking pretty early on. I would say... Uh, we were pretty much tracking our MRR since month very big uh, yeah. three, like of, of rolling out our product because we were focusing on revenue generation since day one. That is our validation. Uh, we felt like if a customer is going to pay us for using the product, then the product makes sense. Obviously, we had to retain them for long term, but the inbound conversion statistics and our MRR were the two key metrics that we were tracking. You spoke about evolving and our yeah. metrics have evolved. We now don't do inbound like self-service signups at all. Like it, it is our, our go-to market has evolved in a drastic way, but it is now mostly it's outbound. Um, even mm -hmm. if a customer comes in inbound, they don't get to like sign up and use it because we realized that the customers were not able to extract the value and get the aha moment on their own. And they needed a little nudge or showing around given how much goes into what we offer. So we started doing demos. And then now we, we, we track our pipeline metrics, our outbound engine, our inbound engine, demo to conversion on those metrics and make sure that the pipeline has a decent value in it yeah. and the entire funnel is machined and oiled very well. Yeah. And speaking of GTM, there are also different approaches on do you start with the large brands because, of course, they have the big budgets. They may be also willing to pay you early on. Or did you kind of start with the long tail brands, the D2C brands who might actually be more willing to experiment with new formats and new tools? They don't have as much inertia as the larger enterprise brands did. And then you work work your way up. But would be keen to uh, just take, take us to some of the experiments you did, but specifically what worked well for you? Right. So uh, in our case, I'll be completely candid. We were throwing everything against the wall and see what hits because we wanted to yeah. figure out. We had three kinds of customers that we could sell to. We have the agencies, um, the marketing, PR, digital media agencies of the world who serve brands. So we were trying to see if agencies, would they be our ideal customers or would they be the brands directly or would they be the D2C e-commerce marketplaces and brands there? And we got a lot of initial traction through the agencies. Now, this is where founders should be careful because while we got a lot of traction through agencies, now looking back in the long term, they were not necessarily our ICP, like the biggest ICP. Yeah. Because we are trying to add a lot of value in terms of data and metrics and intelligence 
to the brands, like our eventual beneficiary of this is the brand itself and agencies are gatekeepers. So yes, yeah. we are able to provide value to them, but at the end of the day, we want to reach brands. So our GTM yeah. focus shifted initially, the early adopters were agencies. So we sold to them. Um, but then eventually, as we started realizing that the brands are where we should focus on, we started shifting our strategy there today. Most of our revenue comes from the brand side, but then agencies still constitute a decent. Of course, chunk of they that. influence uh, the spends. Yeah, exactly. and yes. you you also work with multiple different stakeholders. While your B two B, I also think your B two B to C because you have influencers. Of course, are also a stakeholder for you. You spoke about agencies. All the large brands still prefer the agency model. So you have brands, you have agencies, you have influencers, and then you have the channels, which is, you know, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, wherever the influencers choose to be, what distribution channel they choose to be native to, right? So in many ways, the integrations or the touch points, the stakeholder touch points are multifold for you. Going back, I know you can't do all together in early days. Uh, uh, even I've been guilty of asking you, where do you start first and which side of the problem do you want to solve for first? But actually, my question is, which one now having solved multiple modes of these already, which one was actually the easiest to solve? And any surprises as you spoke and navigated your journey through, you know, to, to, to broad these accesses? So for us, our key stakeholder is in terms of a customer base, we serve the brands. Influencers are key stakeholders in the ecosystem generally, but we don't necessarily interface with them. Our, our platform indexes influencers and we create an index and that the brands can search against, reach out, measure, pay and everything. So we try to focus on how can we improve the customer experience of our brand users. And in that, a key metric we track a lot and very frequently is the NPS, where we want to make sure that we have an industry leading NPS because that influences everything. You know, we focus yeah. a lot on building our own brand from a social proof standpoint. So what are customers telling about us to others? We get a lot of mentions on LinkedIn where someone, either a prospect or a customer, found out about us and they just put up a post because they really like what they see. And that helps us overall with like other brand conversations. I also take a lot of inspiration from Airbnbs, like 11-star, 12-star framework of customer delight. Our entire team has it kind of like on their heads on how can we improve the customer experience a little more and we go out of our way to do that. So our key stakeholder here are the brand marketers. The brands market. always come first. Yeah. The brands, yeah. For, for us, that's, that's the focus. And uh, we do a lot of work in terms of improving the delight at each touch point that we have with them. And so do you find the need given again that you're new to this at some point to also have influencer touch points in a sense that in many ways you're also, you know, giving them more monetization opportunities and giving them more high intent campaigns and you are on the first party data side so you could enable them to help them, you know, segment audience cohort, you know, cohort their audiences. Do you see yourself becoming a champion of sorts in terms of enabling them to be the best versions of themselves and just enable greater and better outreach for them? No, 100%. So I think six months ago or while we, you know, we have a very strong product and engine laid out for our go-to-market with brands, we forgot that because influencers are such key stakeholders of the ecosystem and we have a lot of the technology laid out where we can provide immense value to them, we created yeah. a sub-team, sort of like an affable labs within the company 
a team of five people who started building a solution for these influencers. Now, the approach we are taking, unlike unlike a marketplace, we're building two like two sides and then we connect it with a bridge rather than both the systems having to rely on each other. A few key learnings that have come out of it is influencers actually could benefit a lot from what other influencers are doing. Because some influencers have cracked the code and there is certain a secret sauce to it, which we can decipher through data if we analyze a lot of data points of a lot of influencers. So we're able to do that now. So the way we position this new product that we're working on is a personal business advisor that sits in every influencer's pocket. You bring it out, it will tell you that, hey, this brand around you has been working with influencers like you. Maybe you want to reach to them that you may get a campaign. Or it will tell you what are the kind of content trends on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram that based on your focus group should be a part of. We recently rolled out an integration on top of ChatGPT to look at your last 100 posts and create a caption in your voice about an image that you want to post. You just put an image in there and it will tell you a caption in your own voice while also looking at what kind of captions usually get higher reach, higher engagement, etc. So we're experimenting with this. I think there's a lot of value we can add to influencers. And I mean, it just benefits the entire ecosystem. Yeah, so yeah. Because we are a yeah. part of it, it just makes sense for us to do that. Yeah. And you spoke about how possibly getting influencers together actually flattens out the learning curve for everybody. And therefore, they're actually highly collaborative. There's like all this possibility of collaboration at, at very deep levels, like peer-to-peer between influencers. Even with their reach and their outreach, have you noticed that the depth of engagement or the quality of engagement with their audience is significantly higher when somebody has a very dense local presence or a very dense local followership base have you have you noticed that as well so typically micro influencers would have a lot more engagement irrespective of how dense their follower base is if your followers are fewer and when when we say fewer we're still talking about like 15000 or 20000 followers absolutely compared yes, to someone yes. with 500000 followers yeah. now what we're yeah. seeing is and this is also in a way dense because you have a very specific audience. You're not appealing yes. or even trying to appeal yeah. to. So it's a very people. homogeneous audience exactly, with exactly, uh, very, yes. very similar audience mindsets. Yeah. Yes. And for those, the campaign results are much better. The reach, reach is obviously determined by how many people follow you in a way, but then the engagement that they get, the kind of comments, one of the metrics we track is the sentiment on the comments. So if you as an influencer upload something, you get a bunch of comments. Are they positive? Are they negative? Are they even about the brand? Are they legitimate comments? Are they some spammy emojis? So we, we see that micro-influencers on average get a lot more engagement, a lot more quality engagement to that, a, a lot more brand recognition. So as an influencer talks about a brand, there's a good share of voice and good trust built there. Not to say that the bigger influencers don't get that, but the bigger influencers would have to then focus on a niche. Things go south when someone is trying to appeal audiences across different segments, across different countries, and then you lose the homogeneity, as I said. And do you therefore feel that it's necessarily 
a sum of parts is larger than the whole from a brand perspective would you say that hey you'd rather identify 10 or 20 or 30 or maybe even 50 because you as affable as a platform you can lend them that kind of scale but do you believe you'd rather have 50 of these high intent small campaigns and so that's a sum of sum of parts is larger than the whole and so is this segment therefore necessarily about aggregation and bringing everyone together which, which is why platforms like yours really are very very powerful in enabling brands to drive these kind of campaigns 100% so brands realize that they should be working with 50 micro influencers over one celebrity at the end of the day even a rudimentary math on the back on the back of a napkin makes very evident that the cost per reach with 50 micro influencers is significantly lower than the cost per reach for a big celebrity now however having said that the operational overhead in managing and working yeah. with 50 micro influencers is a lot more and that's where we come in we come in to simplify that operational overhead and we say look we will help you identify the 50 micro influencers send out emails to them message them track all their content see who is getting the most traction and it is i was saying someone that in this context is relevant because it's like venture investing in a way not all the 50 micro influencers will get like a very high reach but almost always on an average 20% this 80 20 rule 20% of those will get you significantly so much more reach and engagement that the net impact is definitely much more than yeah. with the so you have to follow the portfolio rule basically yes <laughs> you need to have a portfolio yeah interesting very interesting and and from your interaction with the larger bands specifically how many of them you felt understood this versus how many of them you know it's a chicken and egg problem for you as well in terms of you having to actually prove this out just help me through the process now on the brand side as you try to sell them this value prop so a lot of the selling that we did initially was in southeast asia and southeast asia while everyone understood that they should be working with influencers it was difficult for us to educate them why they should do it themselves using data rather than outsourcing it to just someone else who would do everything for them so from brands and from the brand's perspective in southeast asia it it was an awareness exercise for us and we did that over a period of time and once we made them aware they would buy our product however the markets like us this is where it was not necessarily an awareness exercise folks knew and understood very early on that there has to be data that we use to make decisions about influencers we work with we just don't go by a gut feeling and whoever was able to provide them high quality audience data high quality measurement data were able to get the blessings of the brand managers to kind of work with so there is a market dynamic to it and yeah we learned it the hard way because when we came to the us we were still adopting the same sales motion that we had in southeast asia where the initial calls we were trying to do awareness and then we soon realized that the pitch is not working at all because these folks already know and then we had to change our messaging around it and why do you think that with these large brands who are so familiar already with your cousins on the other side which is programmatic ads and on that side of the ecosystem they're so comfortable familiar and used to taking data driven decisions and used to high levels of campaign optimization and attribution why do you believe that when it came to influencers uh, it was it was a hard sell in terms of hey let's take 
decisions not based on rumors. I was reading somewhere you mentioning that not based on rumors, but on actual data. And, you know, in this case, past performance is indicative of future results. Yeah. So Southeast Asia generally adopted micro-influencers later than the counterparts in the US and Europe. And that's where Daniel Wellington, for example, is a story, right, which we use, we've spoken about a couple of times. They started doing micro-influencer marketing at scale in 2012. And in Southeast Asia in 2017, we were still educating people why they should be doing more micro-influencers than macro and how they should use a, com- a hybrid approach to that. Right? I think it's just a, a matter of adoption. In 2022, it's not the problem. Like today, if I had to go sell the same product in Southeast Asia, we don't have to necessarily start with awareness, but it just the time it took for marketers to adopt to this. Now, talking about our cousins in programmatic world, there are pros and cons to that because programmatic is at the end of the day, a click of a button and either it works or doesn't work and you can measure it with data. But influencers, you actually have to talk to them. You cannot actually just process it with a click of a button. Every influencer, while they may have some of their base rates, depending on the brand reaching out to them, that might differ. A very prominent luxury brand, influencers might just do it for free because they want to be associated with the brand. But programmatic doesn't work that way. No matter who you are, you pay the same amount or similar amount in terms of range for programmatic. And that's where there's a lot of difference in how brands approach this. A lot of brands don't want to go through the overhead of talking to or dealing with influencers in, in, the, in their words. Again, we try to streamline and automate yeah. it as much as possible, but that's where they might tend to outsource it to other agencies. Agencies, yeah. Super interesting. And I'm sure all of this led to your successful Series A and want to spend some time on take me through how your thought process, your value prop, early signs of PMF, maybe your first few like large enterprise brand logos came in. And where were you also on this journey of moving from Singapore to the US and deciding to base yourself? So two part question in the run up to your series A, you know, what do you think was your headline in terms of what investors were getting attracted to in terms of your progress? And at what point of time do founders take that decision of having to relocate themselves to the geography in which they're selling to? So both the questions are actually conjoined because one led to another chicken egg thing where we had set, we had met our milestones that we laid out in our seed round. We were growing healthy 100% year over year. Of course, that num- it's a number because in the early stages, the 100% is not that significant in terms of a dollar jump, yeah. but it's still 100% yeah, jump. The base, it's the base is low. To achieve that. Yeah, the base is low, that's right. Um, however, so we met some of the critical milestones that we laid out for ourselves. And even though we had money in the bank, we had set our sights on expansion. So we required firepower to enter into market where we've not been there before. And we may have had a couple of logos already because some came inbound and some outbound. We just like trying our luck with US as a market, but we did not have an established presence at this point. So that's where we started warming out like our network and and I started talking to a few of the investors and we noticed this trend where all the US investors want validated traction in the US before they would invest for international companies. At least this is back in 2020, 2021. And we did not. So we felt like, wait, we are looking for a partner to help us expand in the US. 
but most of the US investors, especially if you're not based here, were looking for that validation before they would invest in, in a foreign international company. Whereas a lot of Southeast Asia, India investors were keen because there is this India or Singapore to US uh, channel and a lot of founders have done it. They've proved it works. So we were able to benefit from that. So that we actually, it was a pretty straightforward pitch or narrative for us. We've met our milestones that we laid out for our seat round. We still have money in the bank. We want to now expand internationally for which we would definitely need much more resources than we have right now. And that's why we're looking for a partner to come join us in that journey. And was it time to expand peer networks and mentor networks again, but this time of a different kind in terms of founders who have been on that journey before? So did you actually this time around seek out founders and surround yourself with folks who have done this and, and also in choosing your investors who could help you with this shift? I have done that from day one. I have so many founders who've helped with like you know, very specific questions. If I have a question on, let's say, some matter regarding transfer pricing, I just reach out to a founder because they've probably done it before. And I'm like, okay, this is how you do it. This is why you do it and get it done. So I have had my network of founders, either through EF or through SaaS Boomi or through 500 startups, which we did like some program with. Uh, and even investors who did not invest for various reasons, they've connected us with the other founders in their portfolio. So that has always been helpful. And for us, as we started looking at US as a market, we started seeking advice from people who've done this before. It's just like, hey, you're not here now. You came here. And like Prime, for example, had a couple of portfolio companies that moved from Bangalore to New York and they did the journey. I was in New York doing some customer development before I moved here. I met some of those founders and like the kind of experiences they told me about, which is very spot on. And they, they told me actually day one, like the sun people think that you need six months to validate the US market. I'm telling you now you will need 18 months. And that's how it played out. I came here, I thought yeah. six months, I have a product, I have customers, I have X million in revenue. Like I just have to replicate it here. You come here, it's a different market. So PMF goes for a spin. Then you change market yeah. as a fundamental variable. And, and yeah, naturally, so it took us longer than six months that we initially thought it would take to figure out the market. And a lot of this is just like founders would tell you if, if you were to like ask them before, right? So yeah. and the community is yeah. very tight. Everyone's super helpful. Yeah, no, I, I, I know from the earliest time, we've always reached, uh, reached out and I was actually going through some of the decks from 2017, 18. And one, one thing I think is great advice is also to not be afraid to ask for help and to literally say that, hey, can you connect me to brands or can you connect me to, you know, folks on the East Coast who do this? And I think not being shy to ask for help and just put your network to use. Like one thing is having the network, but other thing is to know when to tap it and put it to use. I also wanted to touch a little bit on competition because the other question really is sitting in Singapore, sitting in India, you have one view of the world with regard to who else is building in the space or even market dynamics wise, what are the tailwinds, what are the headwinds that the overall industry is facing. But take us through when you actually spent those first 18 months in the US outside of product validation, were there also some surprises on market dynamics, on the competitive nature of what you were trying to build, et cetera? And, and how did you handle that? So a lot of the market discovery or customer discovery was happening before we came here. So I mean, we kind of knew what competition looks like. And we had started doing an in-depth study of our competitors 
we knew inside out everyone's strengths and weaknesses. We knew what they position themselves as. We knew feature-wise, like, okay, competitor A does not have this very important specific feature, which we could position in a way during our calls that we have it. So we, we have battle cards for each competitor. Every time a name comes up, we've created sales enablement material that our account executives are able to refer to like very quickly gain advantage over a competitor in a conversation, for example, right? But this happened over a period of time. In terms of surprises, I'm surprised the approach we took worked out in a way where we did not undercut ourselves on pricing. Now, a lot of startups, especially those that come from outside the US and they try to enter the US market, the first strategy they take is, you know, we are the cheaper solution. You know, we, we sell at 50% of whatever the competitor is selling at. However, decisions here are not made based on pricing, especially for like a $25,000 product. Uh, for a $25,000 a year product, you go through the entire funnel and when you are the final two is probably where pricing even comes into consideration. Yeah. Right? yeah. Versus selling outside, like in Singapore or in India or Thailand or Philippines, pricing is a critical factor to reach the final two. So that is something we learned the hard way, especially with competition. And you know, a lot of, some of it came from you know, other founders who told us, don't undercut. But we started to realize why one should not undercut on pricing, especially if that is your differentiator. If you're a cheaper yeah. product, then probably make it more expensive while you sell here because then people will take you seriously. That was one key finding for us. I, th I think it was very important to build out those battle cards and then we have yeah. to keep updating them. I think every founder does this where they would take demo calls with their competitors. But if not, then that is a must. You need to create those aliases. You need to go into those competitor calls, understand how they position, pitch themselves. And Got it. eventually what tends to happen is, especially in the US as a market, you your pitch becomes more about why you should buy us rather than why you should buy a solution like this. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're already familiar that similar solutions There's exist. If not, some yeah. familiarity. Yes. Yes. There's some familiarity with what you're building for. And in the run up to your series A, you know, you spoke about how you had high confidence on the value prop and the fact that there is, there is a need and we have a bunch of enterprise logos and there's a willingness to pay a particular price for this. But tell me about some of the unknowns where you went in and, uh, you know, those conversations that you had with investors saying, hey, listen, we have not figured some of these things out, but what are those two or three things which you laid out as, hey, these are the unknowns and this is something that we'll have to figure along the way with this check one was of course the geography shift that you spoke about but what were through some of some of the other cards that you said and you raised your hand saying hey we need help here i think one of those which are on top of my mind was the the path to a hundred million revenue business and we we were pretty clear about the fact that we have a site to a 10 million in let's say a very short span of time but from the 10 to 100 even if I tell you right now, you like, it's it's going to be made up because yeah. it's not like I've built a hundred. Too many variables. Before. There are yeah. too many variables. I don't know what I don't know. And that's why you're having this conversation because what I'm telling you is I can confidently get to 10. And uh, 10 to 100 is something we'll figure out along the way. So we would need that leap of faith from your side that if I can confidently get to 10, then can you help us or help figure out a way to get to 100? I think that was like one of the larger pieces of the puzzle which 
and, and to be fair, if you're a first-time founder who's at a million in ARR at that point, it is very difficult to imagine how you would go to 100. And a lot of the things that I thought I would need to go to 10 has changed because the you know the inbound, outbound mix-up has changed. The sales process has changed. We brought in a director of sales who came up with a lot of experience about like quotas and the, the salaries of sales, the, the compensation structure, et cetera, and how incentives are aligned. And we did not account for all of that initially when we said look, we could get to 10. But now with all of that in place, we know what we need to do, what are the input variables to get to that. So I think that was like one of the key things that we felt we needed help with. Second was the US, like just go to market. But then we had some clue because we had spoken to a lot of the founders on who had done it before. At the same time, we wanted a foot into the door and some of the enterprises, logos, etc. I would also say that it's not important to prioritize enterprises so much so that it's important to prioritize a good logo because logos are familiar. You know, I can name so many Fortune 500 companies that people may not even have heard about. So then it's very difficult to build social proof around it in the early days. So that's where we, we try to focus on good logos and build case studies around them so that we can plaster them everywhere and then use that to generate our pipeline and generate the early traction and customers. Fantastic. And with that, I'd like to ask you one final question, but I'll end by taking you back to the beginning, which is about helping founders go beyond seed. So if you had to give your idea stage founder advice and you had to relive this journey, what would be like your two or three tips and tricks and things that you need to be consciously aware of as you decide to set out on this founder journey? Wow. It, it would be a fun ride to go back in time because now we could do so many things differently. I think one of those that I would do is I would focus on a niche rather than building a product for everyone. So we set out to build a product and I think I said we were trying to build something and throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And what stuck initially was a product for agencies and then we had to build it, extend it to brands and then extend it to e-commerce. I think if I could go back in time, I would pick ICP and just build for them. Because although mm -hmm. now we have a product that all three of them can use, uh, I would have liked to build a product that's just meant for one because my go-to market would be much, much simpler. And I just would have to focus on one of them. So I think picking a niche would have been very helpful, not only from a product development, but also from a competitor standpoint, because then I could go out and say, we are an influencer marketing platform for X. And then as long as an X is a big market, they would look for us and they would buy our product. So picking up a niche. Another thing I would do is I would spend a lot of time on choosing the right customers. It's important in the early days to reject customers as much as customers reject you. Because bringing in on some customers who could pretty much hijack your product roadmap is a net negative for you. You're building everything for a customer. They're probably not your ideal customer. It's early stage founders, you're getting some revenue from them, you're getting traction, you're getting some validation. Uh, so you don't say no to them. And I think that is something I would focus a lot of time on. And third, the final point would be just to make sure we build the right team. I think this is something we did do, but I would just reiterate to my founder, you know, the pre-idea stage founder version that it is just extremely important because the cost of a bad hire is significantly more than the cost of not having someone good. Right? Because getting someone and then they're not delivering sets you back 
in time a lot more yeah. than just not having someone in the first place, right? So I would just like make yeah. sure I tell myself that it's extremely significant, important to get the right people in the first founding team because they they're going to influence the entire company's like culture, values, roadmap, and everything. Yeah, on that note of choosing your team wisely, I think you couldn't have been on such a incredible journey that these last six years have been for you, even without the right set of investors to all the ups and downs, peaks and troughs. I think it's also important to surround yourself with people who continue to have high conviction on what you're building, building for. So thank you so much, Sharka. I think it has been incredible 30, 40 minutes sharing some of these insights with you. Thank you once again. Now, when I first thought of running this series, I actually thought of the headline, Founders We Love. And then I said, okay, I might have to come up with more, something more formal and therefore the founder forward uh, but I'd de- best describe you from a water bridge standpoint as founders we love and admire so more power to swim in you and I wish you all success and continued success keep marching forward thank you so much once again for your time no thank you so much for having me and really appreciate the series that you've laid out I have also listened episodes of the other series that you run and generally there is so much value in the in the nuggets and the experiences and the wisdom that the founders are sharing that even if like someone was to listen to this before they were to start out or if they were doubtful whether or not this is the right step for them in terms of starting a business there's just so much value in this and different founders would have a different journey and so i think it's very important to recognize that every founder who's potentially going to listen to this their journey is going to be very unique but there are a lot of variables that will still remain the same a lot of the learnings which are extensible so it's an incredible series of podcasts that one could listen to as they set out on this journey. So thanks for putting this together and thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Once again, take care and have a good rest of your day. Cheers, Nisarg. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Angeline.